to drag your conversations to a close. Just as they are closing, let me uh, just introduce myself. My name's Nathaniel. I'm one of the elders here alongside Gordon, and I uh, lead this site. So if I've not met you before, then you are most welcome here. And I shall look forward to uh, catching up and getting to know you more at the end. So please do come and say hello. Uh, now, as a, a church over the last uh, almost year now, we've been going through the book of Acts, and we've been taking it passage by passage and learning about what the early church in Acts can tell us about how to live life in the 21st century and how to do church in the 21st century. And more specifically, we've been looking at Paul and his role in the building of the early church. Paul has now completed his second missionary journey around Asia and into Europe, and he's returning back to Jerusalem. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in Acts 21, uh, part of that journey that Paul is taking back to Jerusalem. Now, just to refresh your memory, last week in Acts 20, Matthew Hosier uh, spoke from Acts 20 and specifically honed in on this verse, uh, verse 22, which says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Uh-oh, right? If I was Paul, I'm already starting to feel a little bit nervous about the journey I'm about to go on. He then goes on, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So Paul knows that this journey back to Jerusalem is going to be full of hardship, but he's compelled onwards by his belief that he's acting by God's will. And it's important to have these words ringing in our ears this morning because as Paul starts on this journey to Jerusalem, I'm afraid it's more of the same for him. He's going to get warned again and again about the hardships that are facing him when he gets to Jerusalem. Matt made an important point that the Christian life will not be without hardship, but that while we do face hardship, we also have the promise of God's grace. And that is good. Important uh, to have those words. So... This morning, we're in Acts 21, and we're looking at five realities, five realities out of the text that I think should translate to how we live our lives as Christians. Uh, this morning, I'm just because we're going through quite a large chunk of text, I've asked Leslie to help me do some of the reading. So, Leslie, do come on up uh, and take us through the first bit. We're going to be reading page 1118, if you want to follow along, Acts 21, down to verse 16. Thanks so much, Leslie. After we had torn ourselves away from them... We put out to sea and sailed straight to Cos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia and went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there onto the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went on board the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Potolmus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, 
tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says in this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready to not only be bound, but also die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we stayed on our way, started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Menanson, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus, one of the early disciples. Thank you so much, Leslie. I did the most unfair thing uh, I've done for a little while to Leslie, and literally about two minutes ago said, please come and read this for me. Uh, so all of those long words that she did uh, straight, straight off the bat there is very well done, Leslie. Thank you. Um, so the five realities that we're going to look at, uh, look at, at from this text uh, start with the reality of relationship. The reality of relationship. See, the first point out of this text is the number of people Paul meets with and stays with on his journey. The number of fellow Christians who meet him and welcome him and pray with him. And many of these would have been known to Paul from his previous ministry trips. As he was making his way back through to Jerusalem, he was revisiting cities that he'd already been to and staying with churches there that he helped to set up. So this wasn't some early version of Airbnb that Paul was using as he was on his way back through the churches back to Jerusalem, but it was built on relationship. This was personal for Paul. As he was going back, these people loved him, were happy to welcome him in uh, because of the churches that he established with them. And the first point really is this. It's great comfort for us as Christians that we are part of God's family. And it's an incredibly big family. So we're perhaps 50, 60 people sat here this morning, but actually we're caught up in a great family of God, numbering millions across the world. We've got Christians all right across this conurbation, Bournemouth, Pool, and uh, and, and across Dorset, <coughs> who we are part of God's family with. And there are some closest, uh, churches that we're really closely knitted into as well. Think about Glasgow Grace Church. Uh, Ian and Lindsay Kennedy went and planted that. That's having its now third or fourth week. Graham and Claire went to go and visit them uh, a few weeks ago. It's great to be in relationship with them. That's one way that we're knitted in as a wider part of God's church. Uh, I don't know if it escaped your notice or not, but it, we had a little bit of snow a couple of weeks ago, literally just about that much, uh, but it was enough to ground all of the aeroplanes that were coming out of Newcastle, uh, so I was sent up to Newcastle for work and got totally stuck there when all the planes got cancelled. Uh, and when I did get stuck, I was grateful for church family who put me up when I didn't have anywhere else to go. We were literally sent away from the, uh, from the airport and told, you're on your own, we'll see you tomorrow morning and try and put you on a flight there. And actually, without the kindness of church family, somebody who I used to go to church with in Manchester, who was now living there, who I was able to phone up and say, do you fancy a roommate for the night? I'm afraid I've, uh, I've been stuck in Newcastle. Then I'd have been a bit lost. It's great to have Christian family, people we're linked with. This morning, even as we're talking, Donna Ashton's in Abu Dhabi visiting Aaron and Tash Lacey. Aaron and, and Tash used to lead this site here and have gone across to see how God might use them to build a church in Abu Dhabi. And it's great to see her out there having fun. <clears throat> Nick Mudge, who attends our older road site, is spending three months with a church in Jersey, trying to help and support them whilst their leaders on sabbatical. And uh, Matt Hosey is often supporting and praying for churches across the world, visiting them. He was out to Nepal and has been out to Washington uh, in, the, in the recent past as well. And it's great to know that as a church here, though we sit 60, uh, 60 people this morning, 
It's great to know that we are linked to a network of churches and the family of God worldwide. We're caught up on a great mission for God, and we're caught up in it together. Um, We need to have the same relationships with churches as Paul did, praying for them, extending hospitality to them, and planting them as well. There are lots of great Bible-preaching, Jesus-loving churches in Paul and Bournemouth, and we should be praying for their prosperity as well. Because if their churches are full of people who are hearing about Jesus, then our town is being affected for the gospel. And that's good news, isn't it? Yeah. So my first challenge to you from the text, if what we see here is that Paul is modeling how to be relational and relational as churches together, then what can we do to bless other churches? Can you pick up the phone and pray for somebody, offer support to somebody in another church? Pray for another church down the road that isn't necessarily this church that's on a great mission for God. What can you do to help support and encourage those in other churches around us? Perhaps picking up the phone to old friends like Aaron and Tash or Ian and Lindsay and just say, we're praying for you. We want your church to be well-established and effective for the gospel. Uh, It's great to be in relationship together. So moving on, the second thing, the second reality that we see from our text this morning is the reality of prophecy. And prophecy, depending on the the church that you go to and the denomination you belong to, uh, people might teach different things. But one of the main things that that the passage tells us Paul's friends do for him is pray and prophesy. We're told about the disciples in Tyre, who through the Spirit urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. We're told about Philip's four unmarried daughters, all of whom prophesied. And we're told about our old friend Agabus, who makes his second appearance in Acts as a prophet. Now, all of these people, we're told, have the gift of prophecy. But before looking at what they say, I just want to take some time to talk about prophecy itself. So prophecy, we believe, is a message inspired by God. And there's some Bible verses up here that are going to help us as we go. 2 Peter 1 verse 20 speaks of prophecy as words spoken from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we believe here that prophecy is from God, interpreted and spoken by us, and it's done through his Holy Spirit. It's also listed in 1 Corinthians 12 as a spiritual gift meant for the building up of the church. 1 Corinthians tells us that these gifts are for the common good. So prophecy is both a gift from God and something that's meant for our good, meant to build us up as a church. Paul's also clear to the church in Corinth in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians that we should be prophesying. And for full instruction from Paul, it's worth giving chapter 14 a look in its entirety. So please do write it down and go back to it later if you want to read that in full. I'm going to paraphrase it for you this morning. So these are my words rather than the literal words taken out of the text, but just as a way of helpfully framing what we believe about prophecy here at Gateway Church. So 1 Corinthians 14, Paul tells us we should eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. He tells us that the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. He says it edifies the church, and he tells us that if unbelievers come in and hear prophecy, it can bring conviction of sin and cause them to worship God. So as a church, we believe that these spiritual gifts are for the church today as much as they were for the church in Acts, and we should be actively seeking them among us. If you've been in this church for any length of time, you might have heard them spoken. Often people will come up to whoever's leading the meeting, it was Matt this morning, and say, I really feel God is saying this, and then they'll be set up in front of this mic here and asked to bring something that they feel God has laid on their heart for the congregation. And that's brought publicly for our good, like the the Bible tells us. 
And it's something that, that is a good thing and something that should be done. And if you feel you've got the gift of prophecy, then please do pray often for the life of this church and bring words of encouragement as God prompts you. 1 Corinthians 14 also goes on to say that others should weigh carefully what is said when it comes to prophecy. So we've got a responsibility as a church to exercise wisdom when we hear prophecy and determine its accuracy for us. It's one of the responsibilities of Matt this morning. He's our meeting host. So if anybody brings a prophetic word later, they come to Matt, and it's his responsibility to help weigh it, to understand what is God trying to tell us. (coughs) It's a way of us helping to understand what God might be saying to us. So anybody who's anchoring a meeting, anybody who's hosting a meeting might ask questions like, does it glorify Jesus? Can it be backed up by scripture? If what's being brought doesn't align with what it says in the Bible, because this is God's word, then it's unlikely to be a word from God. So we make those sorts of judgments. We might ask if it brings encouragement or strengthening or comfort, because that's what Paul instructs us. In all these ways, we weigh what's, what's been said. The Bible's also full of warnings against false prophets, so we take that role of interpretation and weighing very seriously here at the church. None of this is meant to put you off, by the way, but if we're taking it seriously, if God's speaking through us, then we want to be listening to what God's got to say. So again, please be actively seeking these gifts so that they can flourish among us and encourage us. So, with that in mind, we believe that God speaks through his people Uh, We believe that that's for the church today, but also here, you've got some examples of Paul's friends hearing from God and bringing him words. And these words, at first glance, don't sound overly encouraging, do they? You're basically told you're going to get, you're in trouble. There's trouble waiting for you when you get to Jerusalem. So how do we look at what's been said? Well, if you have a look at verse 11 very quickly, verse 11 tells us that the Holy Spirit says... In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So that's the, the picture. That's the word that's heard from God. Agabus comes, and he's got this word, and he, and he takes Paul's belt and says, this is going to happen to you when you get to Jerusalem. And spoiler alert, we're about to read on, and that is what happens. So we know that that is something that God has told Agabus to bring to Paul. But it's in its interpretation that we then get the warning for Paul. If you have a look at verse 12... When we heard this, the people pleaded with Paul not to go. So what we then see is, we have a word being brought, and in a response to the word, Paul's friends were all like, oh, no, mate, don't go. Look what's going to happen to you. That's a very human response, isn't it? If I knew my mate was going to be in trouble, I'd want to say, hey, please don't go. So there you can see an example of a word being brought and then an interpretation coming thereafter from the people. But... Paul isn't put off by these words for two very important reasons. The first of which came from Acts 20, where he says that he knows that it's God's will for him to be going to Jerusalem. It's God's will for him to be going, so he's not put off because he knows he's following God's will. And the second reason is because here, I believe there's something that is strengthening about those words for Paul, because Paul has faced opposition in his preaching of the gospel time and time again, and it has never put him off. He's never shirked responsibility when it comes to proclaiming God's word. He's been shipwrecked and put in prison and beaten, and still he stands up time and time again. So if you have a look at his response to those words being brought in the passage, he said, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in the name of the Lord Jesus. The Lord's will be done. Sounds like he's being strengthened by what's being brought there as he moves on towards Jerusalem. 
Leslie, would you be able to come and help us? Leslie's going to skip just a portion now down to verse 27. Uh, and we're going to read what happens when Paul does arrive in Jerusalem, 27 to 36. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They'd previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked him who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get to the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Leslie. That's uh, your work done for uh, today. So, we know now that Paul has arrived in Jerusalem and those prophetic words that we heard at the, uh, 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 when he was on his way from, from Tyre and that Agabus spoke to him, seemingly here, have now come true. We see that he does face opposition, that his hands are tied, and that he does find hardship when he arrives in Jerusalem. Which brings us to our third reality, and that is the reality of opposition. The reality of opposition. Paul knew it was coming, so, if this man, Paul, is about God's work, going from city to city, doing nothing wrong, then why do we find him in chains and being carted off to prison? Well, let me give you a very quick whistle-stop tour of the Bible, because it all goes back to the debate being had at the time, and actually still is, about who God's chosen people were. So historically, in the Old Testament, Jew, the Jews were God's chosen people. And the Old Testament documents their story as God calls them out time and time again as his people in spite of their wrongdoing. And he continually makes a way for them to be with him. And every time they screw up, God keeps finding a way to bring them back again. In the New Testament, God sends his son Jesus as another call to his people. This time he wasn't going to save them through sacrifices, but through his own son. And this is where it gets slightly difficult because God was about a bigger work not just to call Jews to himself, but all mankind. Now the door was open for anyone who believed, whether Jew or non-Jew, and the Bible calls them Gentiles. A large number of Jews rejected Jesus as God's son to the point of killing him on a cross. However, Jesus defeats death, fulfills scripture, and rises again, this time promising the Holy Spirit to anybody who believes in him. God was no longer to dwell in a temple or a box meant to hold his presence. From now on, we're to be God's temple. But again, this was a problem for the Jews because how could Gentiles be God's chosen people? Chief among the Gentile preachers was Paul, a man who went from persecuting Christians to causing the largest global expansion of Christianity the world has ever seen. 
And he went from city to city preaching the gospel and that all could be saved, seeing tens, possibly hundreds of thousands of Gentiles come to be Christians. And this was a problem for the Jews because for them, Jesus wasn't the son of God and God certainly wasn't in the business of saving Gentiles, which made Paul a blasphemer and they were mad. How dare this bloke uh, make a mockery of our faith? Who does he think he is inviting people to experience something that's supposed to be just for us? So here we are, Paul's in the temple, the home of the Jews, and they're mad, and a riot starts. And that's how the hero of our story becomes a Jewish villain. Paul faced opposition at every turn. He'd been in prison before, but this time, the Jews think they've got him. He's going before the greatest court in the land, and they finally might have their man. Imagine how frustrating this must have been for Paul. He feels like he's doing what God has told him to do, and he's being punished for doing the right thing. We also shouldn't miss the symbolism in verse 30. If you have a look at verse 30, it says, they dragged Paul from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. And Luke, our writer, wants us to see a double slamming of the temple doors here. While the Jews think they've had their momentary victory in slamming the temple door shut on Paul, ultimately, by doing so, they've slammed the door to the gospel and were signing their own death warrant. Phil Moore, who... uh, is a writer and has written many books on, on this matter, says the following. The mob slammed the temple gates shut on Paul and his gospel, and in doing so, provide a case study in what happens to those who reject their place in God's story. They prefer to turn their back on God rather than watch him turn his face towards the Gentiles. So let's put this into our own context. The gospel Paul preached is the same gospel that we're preaching today, this morning. The same salvation is available through the same Jesus, the same one we're talking about, which is why we take preaching the gospel as seriously as Paul did. We will unashamedly stand up and tell you that salvation is through Jesus alone, as Paul did, and that this gospel is available for everyone, everybody here this morning, everybody walking past the door. But that's quite an offensive thing to say, isn't it? And I've said it before. Uh, And one of the maxims that we use in this church is that the gospel is offensive, but nothing else should be. It's what we try and do church by, by making things as comfortable as possible, because we know actually saying that Jesus is the only way to eternal life, the only way to salvation, for some can be very offensive. What we're saying is there's nothing you can do to save yourself. You're not good enough. Everything you put your trust in is rubbish, and all the money in the world won't save you either. Other religions will lead to nothing. It's offensive, isn't it? We might as well be honest. It's an offensive thing to say. And actually put in those terms, it can be an offensive thing to hear. But that doesn't mean it's not true. And Paul experienced opposition for the gospel he was preaching. And actually, we should expect the same thing. What does that mean for us? I mean, it will mean opposition. Some people won't want to hear the gospel that we've got to preach. And it might mean slammed doors, the same way that Paul saw doors slammed on him. Luckily for us, it doesn't mean being thrown in prison, though it's still a reality for some Christians around the world. But it does mean risking our reputations, being mocked or having people roll their eyes at you. It involves being rejected or left out for saying things that perhaps aren't quite as politically correct as they once were. Might might even involve being known as the weird religious one. Oh, don't worry about them. They're just a little bit crazy, you know. But that's not all we are. Because if you're a Christian here this morning, you're being called to so much more than a life of opposition. And our last two realities will help us to unpack that. I think the next reality that we see 
from seeing how Paul made his journey from Europe back to Jerusalem is the reality of obedience. The reality of obedience. Now, I don't know if you've ever had that situation where you've had to do something that you really don't want to do. And I mean really don't want. It's not like putting the bins out or something when it's raining. Like, I mean something you really don't want to do. An example that I would often give is when I went in to have that procedure on my arms uh, and had to have several injections straight into my arms. And you're sitting in the waiting room and you're like, I do not want to do this. Like, I know, I know it's for my good, but also I know it's really going to hurt, you know. It's something I really don't want to do. Emma, my wife, she's a dentist, if you don't know, and she says that she can spot people a mile off that really don't want to be there. She goes out to the waiting room, and people are sat there like that, ready to call your name and take you into the dentist chair for a good drilling. That's the sort of thing I'm talking about, something that you really, really don't want to do. Your whole body's screaming at you not to do it, even though you know it's for your own good. Ultimately, we know we have to do these things because they're for our betterment. And perhaps... <coughs> We can see how Paul might have felt the same way. He, he knew for a fact he'd been told time and time again. His friend Agabus had traveled all the way up from Jerusalem to tell him, pal, there's nothing good waiting for you in Jerusalem. Yet he's still obedient to God's call and makes his way down there. So perhaps in that way, we can feel a sense of what Paul might have been going through. Everything in his body screaming, knowing actually, I might get hurt. I might get thrown in prison. I might be in trouble. But still pushing ahead for what he believed God has called him to. He must have felt the conflict and the cost of pushing ahead, both physical and emotional. The cost, of, uh, the cost that's being felt as a, a result of God's calling uh, for his life. As Matt said last week, and as I referenced at the beginning, the Christian life isn't without hardship. And the hardship sometimes comes because of the Christian life. Obedience isn't easy, and it's often much easier to indulge in sin, to give in to the world, to pretend that you didn't hear the comment at work so that you don't have to defend your faith. The Christian walk isn't easy, but we've not been called to something easy. We've been called to an adventure in Jesus. Matthew 16, verse 24, we find Jesus telling, him, telling his disciples, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Nowhere in the Bible that I've seen anyway does it tell us that obedience is easy. It's often pointed out that obedience means dying to yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. But when you think about what you've had to give up compared to what you gain, it starts to seem like no contest. When we start to understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us and what that means for our lives, Actually, giving up our selfish ambition is slightly more easy to do. See, obedience might make life harder, and you might have to put up with being left out or speaking up when you really don't want to. But you gain the never-ending love of God, who lavishes his grace and mercy on you through his Son, and one day will call you home to a place with no more hardship or suffering or pain or sickness or death or tears forever. We may have to count the cost from time to time in this life, but we'll gain a rich reward for all eternity. And Paul knew this well. Paul arrives in Jerusalem in spite of what he knew was to come. And it tells us why he was being so obedient in spite of hardship just a little bit earlier on in Acts 21 in a portion that we actually didn't get to read. 
In Acts 21, verse 17, it says, When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And that leads us to our last reality this morning, which is the reality of the gospel. The reality of the gospel. You see, for Paul, the hardship was totally, totally worth it. The call to obedience and hardship cost nothing compared to the grace that he's seen in seeing so many come to know Jesus. And his own life trajectory was totally changed by Jesus as well. Paul saw hundreds of thousands of people come to faith, all in churches that he helped to plant and establish as the gospel exploded across the region and eventually around the world. Paul returned to Jerusalem full of stories of adventures and lives won for Jesus, surviving shipwrecks, laughing with friends over food, being run out of towns and welcomed into others. His obedience may be costing him, but it was nothing compared to what Jesus went through for him so that he could be free to experience everything that he had by following Jesus. And actually, if you read the account of Paul's life, where his life took him, the things that he was able to do, how exciting was that life for Paul? Would he have traded that in for anything else? I don't think so. In fact, Paul himself puts it this way in Philippians 3. He says, But whatever I gain, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And by that any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, for Paul, knowing Jesus and being on an adventure of faith with him was totally, totally worth it. Paul had to count the cost and we're being called to do the same. To take up our cross and follow Jesus means cost. And Jesus didn't promise us an easy life. However, we do know that we will have the best life with God in us and with us. The most adventurous life following his calling that we can have. Obedience to Paul wasn't a legalistic shackle that kept him from having fun. It was freedom and adventure that took him around the world with friends in every city, stories of adventure, escape, and God's miraculous power at work. Fast forward with me for a second to the end of your own life. What stories do you want to be able to tell of how God's worked in your life? Somebody was to write a book about the journey that you'd been on with Jesus and the sorts of things that you'd seen in his name. Would they be stories of sitting on the sofa, binge-watching Netflix? Stories of giving in to sin and living a life of self-indulgence? Or stories of seeing God at work in your life, speaking to you, seeing people saved and added to God's kingdom, seeing the impossible made possible through the power of God? It's challenging reading about the life of Paul and seeing the hardship that he went through, but as he said to himself, he'd have done it in a heartbeat again and again for the sake of knowing Christ. And I wonder if you feel the same way. Personally, I know which one I would rather when I get to the end of my life and reflect back on what God has done through me. 
Yesterday morning, we had a, a members' morning, and it's something that we do regularly. We believe in membership at this church. It's good to know that you're part of a, a family together. Uh, and there was 14 of us, uh, 14 new members or potential new members sat around a room, and we were going through what we believe as a church. And one of the things that we believe we're called to as a church is adventure. And if you've been in this church for any length of time, you'll know that we've got three words that we take very seriously. That is adventure, purity, and compassion. And we believe that very much all three of those should be the way that we live our life as Christians here in Paul. But the adventure one is especially important in light of the, the context of our verses this morning. Because we want to be a church that is on an amazing adventure for God together. We believe that the Christian faith is supposed to be an adventure as we're called to something bigger than ourselves. And if you're part of this church, we want you to be on adventure with us, pushing into all the things we feel God's called us to do. See, for us, especially in our society, I think, we're told that comfort is the ultimate marker of success. Who's got the biggest TV or the comfiest sofa, the one that you can kind of sink back into and almost get lost in? I'm not making us feel bad for having those things. My sofa is very comfy. Please do come and find out for yourself. But Paul knew better. You see, for him, the marker of success wasn't comfort or ease, but it was a life lived with God. And we might face opposition. We might have to make hard choices that put us on the wrong side of people's affections. Christians, you're not called to comfort and ease, but to be world changers and faith adventurers. You're called to obedience. And obedience not born out of legalism, but out of grace. If you truly understand the gospel and the extent to which you've been saved, then obedience isn't difficult. Let's be adventurers together, fulfilling God's mission on earth through the church on an adventure together. While you might face opposition, you will get to experience God's favor and grace. You'll get to know God's love, hear his voice, and rest easy in the promises made to us in his word. In this context, it's no contest. And if you don't know Jesus, this is what you're being called to this morning as well. Don't slam the door shut on an invitation of salvation the same way the Jews did when they slammed the temple door shut. You're being called to an adventure of faith the same way as the Christians are in this room. So if you don't know Jesus, I'd love to talk to you more about it at the end and what living a life with Jesus could mean for you. You're being called to a life of adventure through Jesus. God loves you so much that he made a way for you to be with him forever through his son, Jesus. Jesus came, lived the perfect life, and died a painful death in your place, taking on everything you've ever done wrong so that you, maybe even this morning, would have the opportunity to take up your cross and follow him. That means adventure in this life. Not perfect, not easy, but adventure, fulfilling and free, and an eternity of perfection with the creator of the universe. I invite the band to come back up just as we unpack what, how we might want to respond this morning. As I said, if you're not a Christian here this morning, then respond to Jesus. Don't slam that door shut on an invitation to be a part of his amazing adventure story this morning. And if you are a Christian, actually the response is the same. Respond to Jesus by being faithful to his calling. We're called to obedience. We're called to preach the gospel, to make hard choices if it means being obedient to God and to repent where we've taken the easy way out. As we come back to worship, <clears throat> why not take a moment between you and God to recommit to a life of adventure with him. 
and to repent where you've taken the easy way out and not stood up when you should have. We aren't being called to an easy life, but to a life of adventure. We're to be world changers for Jesus, anticipating a day where we'll be with Jesus forever. So let me pray for us, and we'll come back and worship. Oh Lord, I thank you so much for your saving grace, that you lived the perfect life and died and rose again, that we might know you, that a way might be made for us to be with you now and forever. And Lord, I thank you that you've caught us up in this amazing story in this life. It means that we can live this life with you, each day with you, living in step with you, walking in step with you, following your call for our lives. And Lord, I thank you for the adventure that we get to be on because of you, who you are and what you've done. And I pray that you would stir us up to to do that even more, that we'd be hearing your voice as you speak to us. We'd be following your calling on our lives and that we would see amazing things happen in your name that we would feel like world changers, faith adventurers for you. In your name I pray, amen. Please do stand, we'll come back and sing.